Welcome to the Hay Kings podcast, brought to you by Vermeer, your expert in hay and forage equipment. Today on the Hay Kings podcast, I'm joined by Gary Campbell. Gary's the crossover between the farmer and the manufacturer. Gary's operated big balers all over the world, and he's going to share some of his thoughts on the relationship between the end user and the manufacturer, and we're going to talk about some of the future of where the hay industry is going, where agriculture is going. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. Yeah, looking forward to giving some insight into yeah my experiences in the design world for farm machinery and what I learned driving tractors and what I think people can pick up going ahead. So yeah, I'm pretty excited to be here. Oh, my accent's a pretty strange one too. Like, it's been absolutely bastardized over the past 10 years. I did like four years in England and I've done 10 years in New Zealand now. So this is actually a soft accent to what it was. <laughs> and then you're originally from? Um, just south of Belfast, so in the north of Ireland. Got it. Yeah, man. Like, last time I went home, like, my parents were saying I sound like a Kiwi. And I'm like, I don't think I do. But then <laughs> the Kiwis over here are like, you still sound super Irish. So, yeah, it's all <laughs> over the place. Where did you start and how did you get to where you are now? Um, right. So, I grew up on a beef and sheep farm in Ireland. Fairly modest size. Like, we only had like sort of 40, 50 acres, which um, for Ireland is like a pretty common size farm. And like a lot of people will. You know, have a part-time job and do farming on the side. So my father was in the civil service, and mum was a she was working in the hospital. So like we were, we were always like you know farming in the evening or doing the weekends and stuff. Realistically, for me and my younger brother, there was just there's no way that's going to be a commercial size farm. Even though it's super common in Ireland, it's it's never going to be your full income. Right. I was always into farm machinery. Like there's pictures of me and nappies on the farm, like handing dad spanners as he's fixing a tether and stuff like that, and I always, always kind of knew I wanted to go into the engineering side of things. So I, I studied mechanical engineering when I was 16. And then this, this professor turned up one day from a university in England. And he's like, oh, we, we actually do agricultural engineering to a degree level, which was, I didn't even realize that was a thing. I sort of just thought you did mechanical and got into it. So it sort of really appealed to me. And I disappeared off to England and did four years of agricultural engineering, which is pretty much mechanical. but then they would do real-world comparisons. So rather than just doing a stress test, we'd go out and do stress testing like on an actual ploy in the ground. So it was really, you know, hands-in-the-dirt, real-world side of things. So did that for four years, and then obviously had to pay for my education. So in all the summer times, I was driving, I was driving combines in England. I was driving MF-190 balers over in the... In the East Coast, doing like um, bioenergy straw baling. I did six months in New Zealand on a big cropping farm just to, because I really wanted to try and understand different different systems before I went into the, the engineering side. I wanted to try and gather as much various knowledge as I could. So I did a stint in New Zealand and did a six month stint in the, like the ferry north of Sweden, um, driving around balers up there. Um, that was actually, that was working with a guy who was, he was the ex-factory mechanic for the Yamaha motocross team, so he was super good on the spanners. So learned a lot from him. When I finished my degree, I thought, oh, well, I've seen New Zealand, I've seen a fair bit of Europe. Um, so I disappeared off to Australia and drove, drove combine harvesters over there for, for a season, which was pretty eye-opening. Like The place is 
I guess it's pretty comparable to you guys in the States, like just massive, massive swathes of land, which was just new to me, like thousand acre fields kind of stuff. And then um, sort of after all that traveling and driving tractors and stuff, I sort of settled in New Zealand kind of full time. And just purely by chance, I fell into a job. I was field testing for one of the big European manufacturers. So I was doing I was doing summers in Europe and I was doing summers in New Zealand. And that was driving prototype round and square balers. So doing the actual driving off them. You said summers in Europe and summers in New Zealand, which means you were running a baler all year, right? Yeah, pretty much. Like um we kicked off in Europe in June and we were in Europe until late September. And when I say like Europe, we were France, Belgium, Germany, Italy, and a little bit in Holland. And we would only go to a region for the absolute peak of the season. So we'd go in for like that one month window when like everything's go, go, go. Like we were we were only there for the peak of the season to get as many bills as we could for the machine. Mm-hmm. It was kind of organized around, you know, we'd go to Italy and we'd bail the really tough like pasta wheat straw because it's really hard in the balers. And then we go to Germany because they've got real catchy weather windows. So like throughput's really important to the Italians. And then we'd have, there'd be another crew in Spain doing something different because they'd be testing a different set of parameters. So yeah, we bounced around Europe quite a bit. And then sort of September time when it started to wind down, the balers got put onto a ship and they got sent down to New Zealand because I think, from what I'm aware, New Zealand's got one of the longest silage seasons in the world. Like the boys will be kicking off silage here probably September and they'll run it right through till April. And then there's a straw window in the middle, so like barley and wheat straw. In the South Island, New Zealand, there's a massive grass seed industry. So you've got all the grass seed straw as well. So between the sort of the European season and New Zealand season, you're able to put probably like 11,000 bales through a baler which is enough for the designers to be confident that it's it's done a decent dash before it goes on to the markets. So. What you're talking about is prototypes. Can you take us through that prototyping process? Yeah, so the guys I was working for, the, the first year they build what they call a functional model, and that's like the real rough-ready, when you think of a prototype, that's what you'd imagine, you know, like, not painted, stuff welded on ad hoc. It was just proving the concept. So they did that for one season. And then they build a pre-series, which is, it's as they're envisaging it's going to be made. So it gets put on the production line. It gets made in the factory as they anticipate it's going to be made. And then it goes out to the the fiddle test engineers. We were given like a 10,000 bill target. Like we had to, punch 10,000 bales through that machine before they could accept that it was doing its thing. So I drove like, I think it was the second of that baler ever off the line. And we drove it all around Europe, all around New Zealand. Once we'd put maybe like 5,000 bales through it, we then would hand it over to the contractors. So we would then we'd select contractors in different areas. Um, and would base it on, we know they're, they're good guys. They don't, they don't, they're not hard on their machinery. Like there's being hard on the machinery driving it normally. You know, they like wanting to get get the work done. And then there's guys who are just rough and ready and, and don't give it the care and attention it needs. The difference between somebody that bails a lot of hay 
and somebody that bales a lot of hay without greasing it on a regular basis. Yeah, for sure. Because that's going <laughs> to skew your results. You're like, well, that bearing field, because it's never seen a grease gun, as opposed to that bearing field, because it's massively undersized. You know, it's, you need to be real careful that you're looking for the right problems. Right, and and dealing with the right yeah. partners in that instance. And then also... Um, they would try and choose, I guess, guys with different business interests. So we worked with a guy in Italy, and he was running a bunch of um, Crone HDPs, and he was shipping, he was shipping the stuff um, out to Saudi Arabia for like horse studs and stuff. So all he wanted was like as much density as he could, because the more density you get in the shipping container, better prices, obviously. But then you go and work with a guy in Germany, and he just did not care about density. All he wanted was, I need the straw off this field two days after the combine, like at the latest, to get the seed drilling behind it. So he's he's running to a very different set of parameters. So you're trying to pick, you're trying to pick and choose who can, can give you different real world testings. And then there's another whole like range of issues where you're dropping a baler into a or, or any machine in that regard, you're dropping a machine into a contractor or a big farmer. If it breaks down, it's going to screw over his operation. So you've got to have a driver there to back him up, or you've got to ask him, just because we've given you a prototype, you can't take on double the work. Like We're not here to add to your business. We're, you've got to run it like your own baler so that it falls over. You haven't got crop on the ground. Because when it breaks down too, it's not just like a normal breakdown where you go to the dealership, buy a part. The part might not be in production yet. Yeah, the part's not in production. Or it's also, if it does break, we need to know why it broke. So like we were going through an issue where the pickup was plugging every so often in, in certain crop conditions. And like that turns into a 5,000 word report, 20 to 100 pictures all labeled. This is where the grass is jammed. It's wrapping around here. This is what we think's happening. This is the moisture content, like, and that goes. That will go back to the head office and the designers. They'll pull it apart and try and work out what's going on. So you might not have a fix for a day or two, but then when you do have a fix, it's just all hands on deck. We've we had guys couriering parts across the continent overnight to get it to us in Germany to fit it the next day. So yeah, it's a real, it's a massive juggling act, but um, it's always good t- good times pretty exciting. I'm Tom Swin and I switched to the Vermeer TM1410 trailed mower. The biggest impact is capacity. We're just getting more hay mowed. It's hard not to be impressed by a 20 foot mowing and how much you can get mowed in a couple of hours. We went from five acres an hour to 12, 14 acres an hour real easily with this. And that's why I switched to the Vermeer TM1410 trailed mower. Hear the full story at makinghay.com slash haykings. You've run balers all over the world. What's the toughest conditions you've been in? Ooh, um, for um, crop straw, so like wheat straw, I would say Italy, because we were in the north of Italy on super steep ground. Like we had like 300 horsepower on it. Actually, about 350 in the front of a, in the front of a four by three baler. And it could barely drag, drag it up the hills. And it was very tough straw. So that'd be the hardest in that. Silage, I'd probably say northern Sweden would be the hardest terrain I encountered. Because of the permafrost, every year like it, the frost will actually push stones up out of the ground. So we would cultivate the fiddles every, I think it was a five-year rotation to change the grass. Because the grass eventually just dies from the permafrost. But we'd stone rake the field. 
And every year, the permafrost would push up more stones. So the pickups were just getting hammered with stones. So that was pretty tough on them. And then, But I think probably the worst stuff I've had to deal with is probably South Island, New Zealand dairy ground. So I don't know what it's like in the States, but in Ireland, you tend to have your your silage fields, which they're only used for silage. Like you don't put the cattle into it. The grass is fertilized and sprayed and the grass is rolled. And it was like, that is your premium crop. Like that is what's going to get you through winter. Whereas in New Zealand, because they, they don't overwinter the cattle, like they're, they're outdoors 24-7. They tend to take silage off the fields that have got, like they've got ahead of the herd. You know, so that they haven't got the rotation of cattle through to, I should say cows really, they haven't got the cows to that grass in time. So it's kind of got ahead of them. So, okay, we'll close that field off and that'll become silage. But of course, that field has had a herd of dairy cows in it, you know, every 10 days for the whole year. So it's pockmarked up, it's rough. Um, it hasn't been prepared for silage. So that that was just hammering like the pickups and the wheels and that kind of stuff. There's often pivot irrigators down here. So they leave big trenches. So you're not paying attention. You hit, you hit a pivot trench at, you know, 15K. And all of a sudden your pickups up to the bump stops getting smashed up. That's like uh, eight and a half miles an hour for anybody that's doing the conversion oh, in yeah, your head. Oh, yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> so because it was never prepared for silage, it's just, it's got away. It's, it's quite short. It's quite wet, quite dank. And that was always hard to bail. So yeah, there's definitely a few different challenging ones. But yeah, I'd reckon short, short, wet New Zealand grass is one of the hardest stuff I've had to bail. Yeah, just because the ground it's on and because it's just hard stuff to bail, like it's just wet, it's short, the baler doesn't want to pick it up, which is why well, it was a great test bed too for us, but it was one of the more difficult ones. All right. What's the most fun you've had out in a hayfield running equipment? Honestly, it's the field testing. Like anyone who knows me or, or knew me when I was younger, like driving for contractors and farmers, like, I'll put my hand up and say I was a bit of a rough driver. Like I was always a bit ramstam, a bit heavy on the throttle, like wanting to get stuff done. And then I went to the fiddle testing gig, and I've never before been told by a boss or manager, you need to drive harder, you need to drive faster. Like It was just like red rag to a bull. Like You can drive that machine as hard as you want, and it doesn't matter if you break it. It's actually that's the encouraged goal. if you break it. Right. You know, like that is fun. You know, just being rough to a piece of machinery on purpose is quite <laughs> enjoyable. I don't know that I've ever done that. I've been rough on a piece of equipment. <laughs> you wouldn't do it on purpose, you know? It's just it's unheard of. Right. But like that it always it resulted in a few pretty decent stakes, quite a few decent breakdowns. Like um I remember I was down in New Zealand one time and the bailer I was working on in Europe, we hadn't plugged it in New Zealand. Like this thing was amazing. Like it just it would suck up whatever you pushed into it. And then one day I, I jammed the chute, like the pre-chamber up into the up and below the and below the plunger. Normally this baler would clear itself, like it would it would just cycle it would just cycle the, the pre-chamber and eventually clear the plug and you'd crack on. But like today this time it just wasn't working. So I rung up like I rung up the designer in Germany and went, look, mate, this has never happened before. Like, what do you want me to do? And he's like, okay, just open all the panels, get your video camera out, start a video, and just run it at absolute full noise until it clears itself. So okay, like open all the panels up, got the camera out. And this bailer was at like full noise for five minutes straight, just like banging and clanking and 
trying to clear the blockage and it just it wouldn't. So I rung them back with, look, this this is not clearing. Like, what are we going to do? He's like, oh, okay, well, I guess you better pull it back to the workshop and we'll see what's actually wrong with it. So we got it back to the workshop, pulled all the pre-chamber out, and somehow the rake driver had picked up part of a, an old bale from last year that was like hidden in the, I don't even know how it happened oh, but it was geez. a bit of an old bale lying there so like we fed a fully formed flake into the pre-chamber and just plugged it but the baler because the designer wanted me to run it at full gas until it cleared it actually knocked out every bit of timing on that baler oh, like um, like um, <laughs> the main the main gearbox arms were like like shrink fitted onto the shafts yeah and like that was how they were timed and it, it, it owned it all lame completely mounted the gearbox and that that resulted in like a whole gearbox redesign so like that's that sort of stuff was amazing or um like in germany one day you've got the big flywheel on the front of the square baler that holds the main pto clutch pack and this was quite an early machine so it didn't have any covers on it and we're bailing away and i still remember it like in slow motion it just all the bolts that held the clutch pack onto the flywheel just snapped. And just witnessing a clutch pack, a PTO shaft, and an angle gearbox just get sucked into a baler. <laughs> like, oh, I'll just I'll just stop this and make a phone call. <laughs> <laughs> like stuff like that is just it was just funny, you know. Like all you could do is go, oh, well, it's gonna be a late night tonight, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, stuff like that. Like I definitely miss that kind of stuff. Like just getting out and drive machines hard. I had a drawbar come loose one time. Uh, somebody didn't put the retainer clip in the pin that holds the drawbar in, and yeah, I made, a classic that one. <laughs> you might be talking to the idiot that did it. I made it about halfway around the field in the swather that I was pulling. The drawbar telescoped out, PTO shaft telescoped out, and that yeah. that PTO shaft spinning at five hundred and forty RPM. I watched it hit the one tire and nice and slow, just like you're talking about slow motion, spin around, hit the other tire. And I don't know, this was five or 10 minutes worth of time in my mind from the time it hit the one tire to the next. And <laughs> and then it went back and hit the other tire again. And about then I uh, came back to reality and shut the PTO off and you know spent the next half an hour putting everything back together and then another hour going for a hydraulic hose because i broke the hose on the lift cylinders but no i understand those those are kind of fun learning experiences yeah and like not so much on the balers but like in later years when i was designing new zealand farm equipment so quite often i would because i was in a small company so i would often help the boys in the shop floor build the prototype I would talk to local dealers and find a suitable candidate for fatal test. And quite often, I'd, I'd actually drive my own prototypes. So when you get to see those like explosions happen on a machine that you've actually designed yourself, like it's incredibly rewarding because you're out there using it, and it breaks you. Ah, yeah, I didn't think about that. Like I can go and fix that. Like that. That's like a whole another level of sats job satisfaction. <laughs> this is a very different conversation about equipment design than I ever have with a, with a farmer, right? <laughs> yeah, they def, they definitely come at it from a certain point of view, and the view is generally why doesn't it work for me <laughs> is the few I've usually come across. But right, or I'm sure your favorite, the engineers are idiots that have never seen a tractor. <laughs> oh, for sure. And like, even when I was fiddle test engineering, and because we were we were having to fix. Not only was I doing the driving and doing the the field reports and drawing, like seeing what was happening, I was also 
essentially a mechanic putting spare parts on and you'd be like why is this bolt here like this is so difficult like why is it here this this some idiot has done this and not thought it through so like i've been guilty of cursing those guys too <laughs> um and it's not until you get to the other side of the, the table you go ah the bolt's there because if it's not there the guy on the assembly line can't access it because when they build that machine it's built towards the hike it's disassembled so uh, yeah, it makes sense. I can see why it's there now, but it still sucks. <laughs> <laughs> it does make sense from one point of view, just not from the end user. Okay, all right. <laughs> yeah. What other thoughts do you have? I was thinking about some people don't understand that there's like price point that the market has already set, and you can never really go too far beyond it. Um, you know, a square baler costs, let's just say, a hundred thousand dollars, and a square baler has always cost that. If you did something crazy and new that's going to have 200% capacity and you brought it on the market for 250000 no one's going to even look at it because the market expects you to make a baler for 100000 and you can never get away from that. Like it's, it's really set that the market expects a certain price and that's what they're going to pay. I'd love to be able to remember the manufacturer, but I've, I've searched and searched and I can't find it. But there's um, an Asian, I think it's rice harvester. They developed harvesters over, I think it was in Southeast Asia somewhere. Um, the first rice harvesters they made were built from old excavator parts. Um, so they'd have like a crawler track off an excavator. The cab was off an old um, HGV truck. It was all like hobbled together. And they built them really, really cheaply. And farmers went, this is awesome. We've got a machine that can harvest our rice. We're getting more gains. We're getting more productivity. These are brilliant. And they made them for like 10, 15 years. And then the manufacturer finally made their own machine with like all of their own componentry and it was bespoke for that job. And the market was like, we're never, we're not paying that. That's 10 times the price of what these old things were. So there's actually a manufacturer over there now only make their machines with componentry from our industry. So they still got the crawler tracks off a digger. They still got the cab off a, tra- off a truck because that's how they make them cheap. So even though they ca- could do something better, it could make it more productive, faster, whatever, the market's like, no, no, we're going to pay this price. And that's just the way it is. And I think that's just a brilliant case study in, in that part of the market, you know? The market has expectations of the product to be built. Thank you so much for joining me today. This has been a very enjoyable conversation. No, thanks for having me, John. Like that's yeah, I hope people find interest and get some takeaways from it and it's been cool. Mm-hmm.